Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We have a lot of things to rejoice about this morning. We want to begin uh, by uh, letting you know that uh, Floyd Petty was baptized this past week, and we rejoice with him. Also, uh, not at this service, but Greg Taylor was baptized uh, the a week before that. He has been a longtime friend of Terry and Tim Thompson, and we rejoice with with him and his decision to become a Christian. And then uh, just before that, there was a fellow from Henderson, Kentucky named Mike Cook. And I met him in a gospel meeting the end of last year. He just visited that meeting because he was relatives of, of some of the members there in the Henderson Church of Christ. And uh, during that time of visiting the gospel meeting, he really started thinking about his life and thinking about turning things around. And so he called recently and wanted to come down and study some more. And so he drove down and, and we spent a day studying and he was also baptized. And, and we just have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to rejoice about. God is good. God blesses us in many ways. And God gives us a lot of opportunities. And let's make sure that we have our hearts open and that our prayer is that we will be used in the way God would want us to be used and that we can make a difference on this earth for His glory. Isn't it interesting to think about in, in action movies how oftentimes bridges come into play? You know, recently in a movie, one of the most expensive scenes ever filmed was in the Brooklyn Bridge. They shut the bridge down six consecutive nights. And if you've ever been around New York City, it's hard to believe that anybody could afford to shut down a bridge in New York City. But the scene ended up costing $5 million. Fourteen governmental agencies were involved in it. And of course, thousands of people worked to make this scene a reality. Why? Because we all understand the importance of bridges. They connect us from point A to point B. And so many times in a great storyline, there has to be that connection that is destroyed in order to bring about the plot. As a matter of fact, much more important than a movie in real life, how many war stories are told about armies that they had to find a bridge to cross. And when they gathered their troops on the other side, they turned around and destroyed the bridge so that they could stop that point of connection. Or even in the Bible. I know it's not a bridge, but it's that same concept of a miracle that served as a bridge. You remember when the Israelites were being led by Moses and they came to the Red Sea and they needed some way to connect them to the other side of that water so that they could escape the enemy? And the waters parted and, and God allowed them to pass by safely on the other side in that miraculous bridge, if you will. Whenever the Egyptians were in the midst of it, those walls caved in and their lives were taken. In life, good lives are full of bridges. They're full of those times of transition those times where we're moving from one point in our life to another point. And the question is, how well do we do at traveling those bridges? How well do we do at preparing to travel those bridges? Put that thought on hold and think with me, if you will, for just a moment about the New Testament itself. If you look at the New Testament and you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I ask you, what are they? You would immediately know that they are the story 
of Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. Now, we pick up at the epistles, the letters that were written, and what would we read there? We would read about a church that is a maturing church. A church, of course, that is in existence and in many aspects doing very well. But you see, there's something missing if we do not consider the book of Acts. Because if we would only read the Gospels, we'd say, oh, this is the work of Jesus on this earth while He was here. Then we go over to the epistles and we say, oh, this is another wonderful place. This is the place where the church exists. When did all of this take place? Who began this church? How was it established? Acts literally becomes the bridge between the Gospels and the epistles in the New Testament. Now, as we consider that, I'd like for you to think about this book of action where really the book of Acts is the action of God working in the lives of people to establish His kingdom on this earth and to see what responsibility do we have being a part of that church today. As I've mentioned several times already, it's easy for us to immediately think Acts 2. Look at the beginning of the church and see. But so many valuable lessons are missed whenever we begin at Acts 2. Because you know what Acts 2 skips? If we skipped over, we would skip the period of waiting, the period of preparation. Do you remember when you entered into a class totally unprepared for a test? Or maybe in the workplace you had a project that was a major project and you were totally unprepared? Maybe if, if in, in college or some situation you had a big paper that was due, but yet you were not prepared. Do you remember the anxiety, the fear? Do you remember the disappointment? And even when it was all done, do you remember what the failure looked like? Now let's step back and let's ask those same questions, except do you remember that test that you gave it your all and you prepared in every way that you knew how to prepare? And when you walked in... There was a feeling of confidence. And even as you were taking the test, it was a pleasurable thing because you had prepared so much that when you turned that test in, there was a type of an accomplishment that was given, even if it was only self-granted, that I did the best I could do. And look, I'm pleased with that job, a job well done. Or you understand the same thing as it might be a project at work or, or a paper at school. We know what it is. We know what it is to prepare. And this morning, I want to ask you to please dwell on this simple thought. Preparation makes all the difference. Why is it that some people seem to do better in life? Why is it that some people seem to find the bridges in life better than other people? Why is it that, that some people just seem to be at the right place at the right time? Why is it that some people just seem to make the right decisions? Friends, do you realize that those godly people have prepared? They have prepared their life for the bridges that connects to the next opportunity that God has given. And so this morning, as we study this lesson, I want you to figure out how it applies to your life. And I want you to ask yourself questions like, what is the next bridge? in my life? What is the next opportunity where God is going to take me from one side to the other side? And then, very important, 
what are you doing to prepare for that? This morning, we'll get into one aspect of the preparation because we're going to spend at least half the lesson this morning laying the groundwork of why these bridges are so important and why preparation for these bridges are so important. And this is the third thing we're going to look at this morning, and that is why waiting is so crucial. Most of us here would probably say, I hate to wait. Most of us here would probably say, I don't do a good job waiting. You know what the plea of this lesson is this morning? The umbrella that lies over this whole lesson this morning is, let's learn to appreciate to wait. Because God has always used the periods of waiting as times of preparation. And when people learn how to wait in the right way, they are learning how to prepare to find that bridge so that they can be available for the next opportunity. To simply make that point, I'd like for us to look at two different examples of this and then come back to this study here at the beginning of Acts, the first chapter. Let's go ahead and look at this first example out of the book of Acts since Stephen tells the story in a masterful way. Look with me, if you will, to Acts, the seventh chapter. Look, if you will, to Acts, the seventh chapter. Do you remember the story of Moses? If I were to ask you in, in a Bible class setting and 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 just asking for your comments, I said, hey, somebody tell me just some characteristics about the life of Moses. Many, someone would probably say, he was one of the greatest leaders to ever live on this earth. Maybe someone would talk about his perseverance. Maybe someone would talk about him being taken away from his parents at a young age through a circumstance that he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. Many, many things we could talk about this man who led the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery into or to the edge of the land of promise. But how many of us here this morning, we would say, let me tell you why I appreciate Moses. I appreciate Moses because he is one of the best characters to study in the Bible to teach us the importance of waiting in a godly way. Moses' life can easily be divided into three parts. He lived 120 years. The first 40 years, he grew up in the palace. The next 40 years, he's in the wilderness, Midian. And then the last 40 years, he was leading the children of Israel. Let's just put this in a real blanket statement. Moses literally was being prepared by God for 80 years to do the last 40 years of work. I'm not saying his first 80 years didn't matter. I'm not saying he didn't accomplish things. But it is obvious when we step back and look at his life, God placed him in that palace for a reason. He was preparing him to lead the people from Pharaoh. The better he could know Pharaoh, the better he could know the Egyptians, the better he could do in dealing with those ten plagues. God placed him in a wilderness to take care of sheep for 40 years. No doubt, it was part of that time in the wilderness that he learned how to live in a wilderness. No doubt, as he led sheep, did he learn better how to lead. And God takes those experiences and he grows a man who now, after 80 years, comes to a bridge, except the bridge looks more like a burning bush And God gives him the opportunity. And Moses, with some convincing, 
from God, recognizes the bridge, passes back into Egypt, and does some marvelous act. How would Stephen tell us this story? If you would, look with me if you have your Bibles open. to be 971 on your pew Bible. In Acts the 7th chapter, look at verse 20. He says, at this time Moses was born and was pleasing to God, or well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And then the story tells about him going and being raised in Pharaoh's house. And in 23 it says, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him and oppressed him and struck him down, uh, struck down the Egyptian. Now notice this, because the Old Testament story record of this does not even tell us this fact that Stephen tells us in the New Testament. Notice 25. This is what Moses was thinking. For Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, by Moses' hand, but they did not understand. And so the story continues to unfold about how eventually Moses had to flee for his life Can you imagine how Moses felt when he is now entering into his next 40 years of living, but but imagine the next week. You know how when something's on your mind and it continually dwells on your mind? Can you imagine how Moses is replaying that over and over? I I was in that palace for 40 years and I had compassion on, on God's Israel and I was the one that could have led them out. And they would not follow me? Do you realize that oftentimes what you and I view as the frustration of failure is actually God giving us the opportunity to wait and to grow during that time of waiting? I would suggest to you that Moses was a much more capable leader 40 years later. And isn't it interesting that at that point, he was not as confident in himself. But it was the time of waiting that God used to prepare him. Back up, if you will, in your old Bible, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter. That'll be on 261 in your pew Bible. 261 in your pew Bible. I'd like to remind you of another character to just see how God can take times that to us it seems like that, that... that nothing is happening, if you will, that pertains to the future, where actually God is preparing us. Now, the reason I like this story is because here we see an example of a man who, in a sense, God was using to prepare him during this time, but he, he probably wasn't even aware of it. In other words, he wasn't idle, waiting in the sense of twiddling his thumbs. His wait was taking place without him even aware of it. One of the greatest characters of the Old Testament is the story of David. David's story is absolutely amazing for many reasons. We think of this great king. But I want to ask you, how did he prepare to become a king? Someone says, I tell you what really gained the confidence of the people. Whenever he was able to slay a giant named Goliath, he was able to gain the confidence of the people. Okay, well, how did he prepare to slay Goliath? Go to the library and look for books that teach you how to slay giants. That's how David did it. He went to the library and he said, I just want to become a person that can accomplish huge things. 
No. I only say that to make this point. I think sometimes we get so caught up in our life of doing the great things that we forget that God uses us in the time of day-to-day things to prepare us for those bridges in life. And if our whole idea is I want to be prepared for some tremendous bridge in life, for some great life-changing event on the other side, and I'm going to sit and twiddle my thumbs and do nothing until I find that book to read, until I find that way to do it, we're going to waste our life. God has always been able to take individuals where they are and use them at what they have at their disposal at that particular moment to prepare them for those great things in life. And so here is David. And where do we find David as a young man? We find him in a shepherd's field. We find him taking care of sheep and feeling the weight of responsibility of protecting them, leading them to green pastures, leading them to still waters, and making sure that they had their every need fulfilled. And now... Please don't take this for granted. Think about the depth of this simple point. He is facing a giant. How do you prepare to face a giant? David goes to Saul and he says, I can tell you I'm prepared for this. Young man, how can you be prepared for this? Notice what he says here to Saul. We're reading in the 34th verse of 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter. And he says, But David said to Saul, Your servant, he's talking about himself, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. In other words, Saul is talking to him about why he thinks he could take care of this giant. Well, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. Now here's his, here is his experience. Look at 37. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David, how did you prepare for a giant? Well, I just took care of the sheep that God gave me. And I put my total trust and faith in God. And that prepared me for a giant. That prepared him and the people in part for the fact that he would become king. Friends, it's interesting as we go back to our story here in Acts, the first chapter, how God has always used times that we are unaware of to prepare us for the next thing in life. But the question is, what are we doing now to prepare for that? So in the rest of this lesson and in tonight's lesson, we're going to look and ask this simple question. If Acts 1 is really a chapter of preparation, in other words, the great event, the great event is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the apostles in Acts 2 and them standing up and Peter standing up along in verse 14 with the 11 and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, how those that had crucified Jesus could be saved and the church was established. How did that great event take place? It took place because of the preparation that was taking place in Acts, the first chapter. How did that preparation take place? 
it began with the simple command. If you go, if you will, go back to Luke. That's volume 1. Acts 2 is volume 2 of Luke. Go back to Luke 24. In Luke 24, let's read verse 49. And let's notice here the preparation. Let's notice how waiting was a part of what Jesus told them to do. You remember last week we pointed out how they must have been on an emotional uh, roller coaster there of they were afraid when Jesus was arrested and they fled and then they were sad because he died and then they lost hope because he was dead and then he was resurrected and they believed in him again and then they walked with him for 40 days and then he ascends out of their sight. And you can imagine how that must have left them a little bit bewildered. Now what are we going to do? He's given us this great commission and now he's no longer with us. Lord, what do you want us to do? Now, notice what he says that he wants them to do in 49. Behold, this is just before he ascends up into heaven. He says, Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. That's going to be the Holy Spirit. But here's what I want you to do right now. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are induced with power from on high. And so there's the command that the scripture reading that was so capably read a few minutes ago in Acts the first chapter, you say, well, why were they just waiting around in Jerusalem? They were obeying the command to tarry, the command to wait. That could not have been an easy command to obey at this particular point in their life. But what it does tell us is that oftentimes, let me rephrase that, At all times, at all times, the most important aspect of waiting and preparation is this simple word, obedience. Do you realize they had choices? They didn't have to go back to Jerusalem and wait. When we read in the scriptures here, we see that there were 120 people waiting in an upper room. And they waited I want you to imagine when we say that, that represents all day and all night. They waited all day and all night. They waited all day, all night. They did this for 10 days. Any of us that have been on mission trips, you imagine yourself being away from home with a group of believers and you are not really certain what the next move is and you imagine what it feels like to just be waiting with that group. And then someone says, was it really that difficult for them to obey? I would say that was a huge temptation. Can you imagine how they must have at least been tempted to say, do you want to just go ahead and start back to Galilee? You know, I've got some business concerns. We've been away for a lot of weeks now. I really need to get back home and do some things. Friends, they had life to live. But yet Jesus says, when I ascend, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. In other words, I want you to put your life on hold. One of the greatest aspects of their preparation was the fact that they obeyed. When is obedience tough? Let's mention four of these and then we'll just close out the lesson. If you want to turn back and I'm just going to mention the story of the story of Naaman. In 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, the reason I start with this is because I believe that one of the greatest tests of our obedience, let's put this on pause for just a moment. Let me back up and make this statement. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you really are genuine 
you are sincere. If someone asks you, do you want to obey God? You say, absolutely. No hesitation. It's not that we're perfect. It's that we know beyond any shadow of a doubt, we want to obey God. And in that sense, obedience to God is attractive. You like to obey God? Yes, I do like to obey God. But you know, there's some times that obedience to God is not so attractive. And those are the times that we are tempted. And those are the times that if we are not faithful, we fall into sin. So when is it that that obedience is not so attractive? Well, I would guess that it wasn't so attractive to the apostles and to the 120 at this time. You want us, Lord, to wait day in and day out. We're not even for certain what it's going to look like that we're waiting for. And we don't even know how long we're going to wait. Maybe it would have been different if the Lord would have said, wait 10 days. They didn't even know how long they were waiting. Waiting is hard when we don't understand why. When we don't understand why this is happening to us. The age-old problem of pain and suffering when we don't understand why somebody in our life is doing what they're doing, why is my child rebelling? Why is my spouse doing this? Why is my, my parents, why, why is my neighbor, why is my friend from childhood? What are we supposed to do when the situations around us do not make sense? What are we supposed to do when the people around us do not make sense? God would answer, obey. You know, Naaman is a wonderful story about a commander of the army of Syria. He came down with leprosy and they had taken upon a raid an Israelite girl and made her a slave in their home. And she was helping his wife and she spoke to the to the wife and said, it's a shame that he wouldn't go over to one of the prophets of God and the prophet of God could heal him of his leprosy. And so the wife tells him and convinces him to go over and to at least try. And so he approaches Elisha. And as he approaches his house, he sends in a messenger to tell why he is there. Now here is this man that is the commander of the army. He's a man of valor, the scripture tells us. We know he's a man of power and of success. And here is this man waiting for this prophet to come out and to heal him. And he is greatly offended when the messenger comes back. The prophet doesn't come back. The messenger comes back and says, go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And notice what his answer is here. In 11 of 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, in 11, Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not... The Abana and the far part, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But then the servant comes and says, but what if God would have asked you to do something great? Or what if the prophet would have asked you to do something great? Wouldn't you have done that? And so finally he agrees to go and obey. But do you see how he did not even like those few minutes of waiting? He didn't like the idea that the prophet didn't come out and immediately wave his hand over the leprosy. You want me to wait long enough to do something that I just don't understand. Why must I go and dip seven times in dirty water? 
Why? To test, to see if you'll obey. How many times is God growing our faith by testing to see if we'll obey when what we're being asked makes no sense to us at all? Friends, if the only time I obey God is when I think it makes sense to me, that's not being a disciple of God. That's being a disciple of self. But notice, if you will, in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse 7, 8, we also see that Jesus Christ there learned obedience by the things that He suffered. You see, many times we see that obedience is attractive until we see that obedience asks us to suffer and then it loses its attraction. But the Hebrew writer tells us Jesus learned obedience through the things that He suffered. Are you willing to obey when it hurts? Are you willing to obey when you have to give up a part of yourself? Are you willing to obey when you know If I cross over that bridge and if I obey God, the other side is going to be less comfortable. Are we willing to obey even when it costs? When we look at Matthew, the 19th chapter, that's the story of the rich young ruler. And in that paragraph in verse 21 and 22, Jesus has identified this man that can obey all of the law except one thing that Jesus Christ would ask him. Take all that you have, sell it, and give the money to the poor. Then he could have treasure in heaven, Jesus told him. But you see, he loved his money more than he loved God. Obedience is attractive until we find out that there's something in our life that we love more than God. And any time then... We struggle to place that underneath God. Obedience doesn't look nearly as attractive. But then finally, I would like for you to notice that in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter in verse 1, he talks about suffering again. And when he comes to verse 4, by the way, in verse 3, he's talking about those people that now that we've become a Christian, we'll no longer run with these people. And he says it's the people that, that have drinking parties and they live the immoral life. And, and he says... They are going to think you to be strange. And they are going to speak evil of you. Now let's be honest, we're kidding ourselves when we say, oh, I think people really appreciate the fact that I live a Christian life, you know. My co-workers know that I'm moral and I, I think they really, really appreciate that. If you think that's what everybody's doing, you're living with your head in the sand. God Almighty tells you, if you're living the life you ought to be living, there's going to be people looking at you that says, that is the weirdest bird I've ever seen. You wouldn't believe what they call a good time. You wouldn't believe the things they won't do. You don't understand those people over there and they'll turn around behind your back and they'll speak evil of you. And when we take our head out of the sand and we realize that's happening, then we have to ask ourselves, Does obedience look so attractive? And then the real test is, will I do it? Do you realize the only reason Acts the second chapter took place of that great beginning of the church was because there were 120 disciples that obeyed when Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. It couldn't have made sense but it didn't matter. 
they had already made their decision to follow the Lord no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, and no matter what everybody had said, and the rest of the book of Acts proves that. Tonight we'll look at more things that they did out of the book of Acts to prepare. Is your life prepared? Are you prepared for your Lord? Are you using the time God gives you in waiting to prepare? And the greatest question we need to ask this morning is have I obeyed my God? If you've never been baptized into Christ or if you have and need to come back to Him, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.